Let me ask a question. How many of you, kids or adults, are good at geography? Geography. Not even any, any adults or anything. Okay, there's one, Jesse. All right. Anybody else good at geography? I loved geography when I was a kid. Come on. Adults, how many of you guys are good at geography? How many of you know your states? Let's limit it to the United States. How many of you know your states? All right, some of you, so help me out. All right, there's a picture of the United States of America. What state is that? Texas. Texas. All right, how about that one? Okay, that is Washington. How about Montana? I'm going to keep bringing them up, and you just tell me what they are. All right. New Mexico. All right. Very good. North Dakota. There you go. Oklahoma. Colorado. Idaho. Wyoming. Good. All right. If North Dakota was above it, then South Dakota is below it. And... Kansas, not Missouri. And one more with a big lake in it, Utah. Now, unfortunately, this isn't a fun geography lesson. It's actually a stunning illustration. If you take the combined populations of those states, you have roughly 56 million people, meaning you have roughly the same amount of babies that have been murdered since January 22nd, 1973, when Roe v. Wade made abortion on demand legal nationwide. Imagine a massive bomb taking out all of those states. The heart of our nation wiped out 56 million souls, gone. Well, you don't have to imagine it. A slow... Quiet, hidden, gradual holocaust has been happening in our nation for the past 43 years. Abortion has left a huge bloodstain on our nation. 56 million dead babies, over 1 million per year. But of course, abortion isn't a uniquely American sin. In the same period in which 56 million babies died in America, 336 million babies were aborted in China. The same period of time. That would overflow our map right here because our nation consists of about 319 million people. And that's just China. A very conservative, very conservative estimate of abortions worldwide since 1980 alone comes to about 1.2 billion, billion. All of these numbers are, are only tracking abortions that have been performed, not other abortions brought about by abortion-inducing drugs. These, any way you cut it, are sobering statistics. Today, we observe Sanctity of Human Life Sunday a week earlier than all the other churches in America are observing it because of some things we have going on here. And we've observed the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday several times before at Harbin's. 
And as we do so, we acknowledge that the issues related to the sanctity of human life are not limited to abortion. As our culture increasingly loses sight of the value of human life, well, other issues emerge, such as euthanasia. There have, has been a steady growth and rapid increase of euthanasia in our nation. Washington, Oregon, California, Vermont, Montana, and certain parts of New Mexico all have laws allowing for what they call physician-assisted suicide. And many other states have pro-euthanasia measures on their ballot for 2016. And the cultural devastation or devaluation, I should say, of life is reflected in other woes that affect our nation. Human trafficking, the mass shootings, spousal abuse, child abuse, and much, much more. When life has no value, when human life has no value, and it's not protected in any stage in any way, devastation comes upon a people. So why should? The question as we come to sanctity of Human Life Sunday is this. Why should we value human life? Why do we observe sanctity? And focus on that word, sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Is it merely a political position, a political posture that aligns us with people in our political tribe? Do we value life because it's the most reasonable philosophical position to stand on? Or do we value it from a more pragmatic standpoint? Believing that a high view of life is what's best for a civil society. Perhaps we value life because of the increasingly clear scientific data that, that, that tells us when life actually begins. Oh, friends, there's many, many reasons that we might value human life. Some are better than others. But as Bible-believing, gospel-centered followers of Jesus Christ, we have to have, and we do have, a much more sure footing to stand on for why we believe in the sacredness, the sanctity of human life. To help us see that this morning, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 11. We're going to read down through verse 21. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Now, let me give you a little bit of background and context as you're finding today's text. What we have here is coming from the, the first parts of the book of Acts. And in this first portion of the book of Acts, we see the birth of the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. He has given the, the, the disciples and the apostles um, boldness to preach the gospel. The church has been growing as the people in the church have devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they fellowship together. They broke bread together. And they prayed together. God was doing great and miraculous signs through the apostles. And people were coming to Christ. And then we read in Acts chapter 3 that Peter and John were going to the temple for prayers when they came across a poor, crippled beggar who, through the power of Christ, they healed. The healing, as would be expected, attracted quite a crowd. So they healed this beggar. He asked them for, for money. They said, we do not have money, but what we do have we'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk. And he was healed, and it attracted a crowd. And Peter, sensing a gospel opportunity, began to preach. 
So that's what we have in today's text. As we come to verse 11, we have Peter recognizing this opportunity and beginning to launch into a sermon. I'm going to focus in mainly today on verses 14 and 15. But I want to read the whole passage, verses 11 through 21. So please stand now, if you would, as we read Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. At Harbin's, we believe this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. It carries as much authority as if Jesus Christ himself were standing here speaking to us. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, Long ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to the text today. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us as we, we look at this passage of Scripture and we, we meditate really upon what it is that Peter said about the nature of Christ and the purpose of Christ, that we would think about that and how that informs our views and our action regarding the issue of life in our culture. So God, I pray that you would grant me a mouth that will speak clearly, articulately, but more important than clear and articulate is accurate. And I pray that you grant all of us, myself included, ears to hear and hearts that will be receptive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now we can show, we can show people scientifically that what is in the womb is not a potential human being. It is not a blob of tissue. It is not a part of the mother's body. It is, as any college embryology textbook will show you, from the moment of conception, a genetically distinct, unique human being. Matter of fact, our government's own definition of what happens at fertilization attests to the fact that life begins at conception and not birth. According to the National Institutes of Health, at conception, quote, we have the development of a new individual, end quote. Science is a powerful tool to argue for the value of human life. It really is. We have science on our side, but it is not enough. 
We can also philosophically argue for the value of human life. We, we can and we should remember certain philosophical arguments like those found in the sled test. How many of you are familiar with the sled test? Anyone? A few of you. Let me kind of give you an example. Someone may say to you something like this. How can something so microscopic and small as a tiny embryo be a human being? We must therefore argue that a person's value can't be determined by his or her size. S in the sled argument is size. Smaller human beings are not less valuable than larger ones. Little Parker, who I had to use a stool to baptize him, is not less valuable than me because I'm bigger than him. Size in no way is an argument for the value of human life. Another person may say, well, an embryo is just a few cells. It's hardly even developed. And we must show them that human life is not determined by L, in the sled argument, level of development. A four-year-old girl is less developed than a 14-year-old girl. Toddlers do not have some of the functions in their bodies that teenagers have. They are less developed, but they are not less people. They are not less valuable as humans. Nor is value assigned by environment. That's the E in the sled test. Meaning where the person is located. Some argue that because the baby is still in the womb, it doesn't have the same value. Well, a person in, a bu- in this building is no more valuable or less valuable than the person outside of this building. So to environment or location in the womb versus out of the womb is not a reasonable determiner of value. An eight-inch journey down a birth canal doesn't inherently change the value of an individual. Let me ask this. Is the 24-week-old premature baby located in the environment of a NICU incubator more valuable than the 24-week-old baby still located in his mother's womb? Our answer has to be no. You cannot determine value by environment. And then D, dependency. Still, others will argue that because the fetus is dependent upon its mother, it is not a person. But dependency isn't a reasonable determiner of value either. Is the paraplegic accident victim from a car accident, is this person who needs 24-7 care, is he less of a human than you or I? Because he's more dependent than you or I? Dependency is not a determiner of value. So philosophically, we can make strong arguments regarding the value of human life, but even it is still insufficient. As Christians, we believe human life is not just valuable, but it's sacred. Let me say that again. As Christians, we believe that human life is not just valuable, but sacred. Meaning it's been set apart. Sanctity, sacredness. It means to be set apart. Human life has been set apart as special and unique by God. So I want to give us four reasons for the sacredness of human life in using today's text as sort of a jumping off point to talk about those four reasons. And I first want to focus on the title given to our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 15. It says this, you killed the author of life. You killed the author of life. So human life is is sacred 
Because, number one, Christ Jesus authored it. It is sacred because Christ Jesus authored it. As Christians, we believe life is sacred because it is a gift from God. Job chapter 33, verse 4, Elihu rightly states, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, Paul, arguing before pagans, says that God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Jesus himself, as the second person in the Godhead, was the primary agent of creation. John 1, verse 1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Christ Jesus, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the author of life. Now, author here is translated in other places in the Bible as leader or prince or chief. But in this context, it is rightly understood as meaning originator or source. Jesus is the originator of life. He is its chief designer. He is the author of life. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things, all things were created. Hebrews 1.2 says that through the Son, God created the world. So human life is sacred because God, specifically Christ Jesus, is the author of it, the originator of it. But not the originator in a, in a general sense, like in, in a hands-off sort of way. Jesus didn't just wind up the universe and just let it go about its, its business. The scriptures teach that God is involved in the intimate details of each one of our lives and in the intimate details of our creation, our formation. We read in Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your books were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. In that last verse I just read from Psalm 139, verse 16, the very last verse of that passage, it teaches that not only are we custom designed by God, we were created by God for a custom designed purpose. Jeremiah 1, verse 5 God speaking to the prophet Jeremiah says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. When did I know you? Before I formed you in the womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This text teaches that even the value that God assigns to human life happens in his mind before he even creates us. For God knew, and the word here knew refers to an intimate, personal knowledge. He knew Jeremiah before he was even formed in the womb. So human life is sacred because it is the creative, artistic genius of God. We are masterpieces. When you go to a museum and you, you, you look at the different uh, beautiful artistic masterpieces in the museum, you're awed 
You're awed at these things and you're amazed by them. And they say something about the creator. They say something about his genius and his creativity. And to take a knife, to run up to a beautiful painting and slash it would be a horrible violation against the one who created it. But more than life being a gift from God, human life in particular is unique and special and sacred. For humans alone were created in the image of God, Genesis 1 Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Humanity was uniquely created in the image of God, the imago Dei. That is why we have been given the mandate to have dominion over the earth. No other forms of life were created in God's image. We are distinct from all other animals. How many of you here are animal lovers? You like animals. Good. Our home loves animals. We just got a pet pig. You heard me right. A pig. Add the pig to our two cats, two birds, rabbit, frog, and dog, and you get the picture. We, we love animals at our home. They're cute. They're fun to play with. They're fun to interact with. Some of them are cuddly. Yes, even the pig. They are part of the family. Only that they're not actually part of the family. They aren't created in the image of God. The pig feels no remorse for eating Olivia's homework. None at all. Olivia may be okay with that. The birds have not hatched any sophisticated plan to get out of their relatively minimal security cage. The dogs and cats have not reasoned together to live peaceably and come up with a covenant with each other. The rabbit expressed no deep need for fellowship as he hops around alone in his cage. All other creatures are not made in the image of God. Mankind is unique, set apart, different. We image God in that we are the only, that we are not only, I should say, material beings, but we are immaterial spiritual beings as well. We image God when as rational, volitional agents we create art, we write poetry, we compose symphonies, we build buildings, we construct complex arguments, and thus we reflect God's creative glory. We image God when we as moral creatures see the wrongs and the ills of society and we demand justice and thus we reflect the righteousness of God. We image God when we as relational beings, we long for love and fellowship and companionship and thus reflect the triune nature of God. The image of God is the foundation of our value. In 1933, our government decided that the dollar would no longer find its foundational value in gold. And since that time, our dollar has consistently lost its purchasing power through incessant inflation since 1933. So the dollar, separated from its foundational standard, has lost its value. So too humanity, separated from the foundational value we have as being created in the image of God, loses, loses its value. If the image of God, Imago Dei, is not the foundation for our defense of human life, 
then we will have no reason to defend human life at all. And human life will become no different than Suey, that's the name of our pig, or Molly, our dog. Matter of fact, one prominent animal rights activist said exactly that thing. He said this, quote, A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They're all mammals, end quote. Peter Singer, the famous bioethicist at Princeton, in 1983 said this, quote, We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals, and alone possessing an immortal soul. That's what he said in 1983. And so with his ethics now unhinged from the image of God, it's no surprise that in the year 2000, Peter Singer's thoughts evolved to this. And let me quote him. When the death, this is quote, when the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. Therefore, killing a hemophiliac infant has no adverse effects on others. It would and should, according to the total view, be right to kill him. Ethics unhinged from the image of God leads to the destruction of the image of God. Human life unhinged from the biblical concept of being created in the image of God leads to death. The image of God means to reflect God's glory. Man was created, therefore, with inherent dignity and worth. And we read earlier Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. But we ask, well, what about sin? Does the fact that sin entered the world change the value, the worth of humanity? Is human life still valuable after the image-bearing capability of man has been so marred by the fall? As spiritual beings, mankind began to worship created things instead of the one true God. As moral beings, he began to pervert justice by calling evil good and good evil. As creative beings... He began to use art to exalt the lusts of the flesh. The image of God was distorted by man. The image he was created to bear, he now hates and denies. And mankind doesn't become sinful. Mankind is born sinful. The image is marred from birth. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. At conception, we are already moral agents guilty of sin. So is human life therefore still valuable to God after the fall? Well, God answers that question pretty quickly. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Mankind still is precious in God's sight. It is his precious masterpiece. It is still to be protected. Matter of fact, God so values his image And thus so values his image bearers that he would go to the farthest extreme to rescue us. Which takes me to our second point. Human life is sacred because Christ Jesus entered into it. It's what we've just been celebrating for the past month. Acts chapter 3 verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In order for Christ to be denied, in order for a murderer to be granted release in his place, in order for Jesus to be killed and then raised, 
in order for this to be witnessed physically, witnessed by hundreds of people, then the Son of God had to actually enter time and space and take on real physical humanity. Jesus Christ, the one through whom all things were made, valued human life so much that he left the riches of heaven and entered into the poverty of humanity. He put flesh on. And this is what we've, like I said, we spent Christmas celebrating. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation proves the value of human life. For the baby that was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's virgin womb was from conception the Son of the Most High. A fact testified to in Luke chapter 1. As Elizabeth's child in her own womb, John the Baptist, he leaped with worshipful joy when coming into the presence of a pregnant Mary who was carrying our Lord. So this whole story would be incoherent if human personhood does not begin at conception. Jesus wasn't worshipped after he was born. He was already being worshipped while he was still in the womb. The incarnation itself proves the value of human life at every stage. And the very act of Jesus taking on flesh showed how much he values human life. For he took on humanity to save humanity. The author entered his own story. Oftentimes when you're watching a movie, the director of a movie will sometimes insert himself into the story. He'll put himself as a a little bit character somewhere in the story. Or sometimes even authors do that. Stephen King would write himself into some of his books. Or when you watch the Marvel movies, you always find Stan Lee in there somewhere. He's in there somewhere. But the ultimate author of the ultimate story entered not as a peripheral character, but as the hero who came to save mortals who were helplessly lost. Fallen man needed a perfect prophet who spoke perfect words of life. Fallen man needed a pure priest who would offer pure blood as an atonement for sin. Fallen man needed a peerless king who would defeat man's enemies and rule with justice forever. Enter the author of life. As Philippians 2 teaches us, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Galatians 4 teaches us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ put on humanity to redeem humanity, to pay for the sins of humanity, and the only payment sufficient to save fallen image bearers was the death of a perfect image bearer, Jesus Christ himself. Which leads me to my next point. Human life is sacred because not only Christ Jesus authored it, but Christ Jesus entered into it. Christ Jesus died for it. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. What a stunning statement. You killed the author of life. Who killed Jesus? Well, a little later in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 17, we read this as the, the disciples are praying to God. They said, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In time and space, the Romans, representing all Gentile nations, and the Jews, God's chosen people, put Jesus on the cross 
And from that, we can then move to the theological implication that the whole world killed Jesus. We all killed Jesus. In a real sense, we were all there in that crowd yelling, crucify him. But we also killed him when we rebelled. When we rebelled in the garden. For Romans chapter 5 teaches us that we all sinned with Adam. And thus we, we killed him because his death was to pay for our rebellion. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you are like Barabbas in the, in the text that we read here. The murderer who was set free. You are like Barabbas in today's text. Jesus dies and Barabbas the murderer goes free. Jesus dies and we go free. Though we are the ones deserving the death, we are the ones deserving the sentence for our sin. Jesus takes our punishment upon himself. He goes to the cross in our place, our rebellion against the, God, against the one true God, beginning with Adam and continuing into the present, put the author of life on the cross. We put Jesus there. And so that rebellious image bearers, he did all this so that rebellious image bearers, like you and me, could be saved. That's how much God values human life. Human life has value. Human life is sacred because the cross says it's sacred. The gospel demands that it's sacred. Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Rebels, insurrectionists, totally depraved while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we killed Jesus. But there's another player in the death of Jesus. It's God. Whatever his hand predestined to take place is what we read earlier. And we read this in Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And Jesus himself said this. No one takes my life from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. The father willed to crush the son. The son willingly laid down his life because, as strange as it sounds to us, ultimately, the cross is the means by which God is most glorified. Ultimately, the salvation of sinners means the magnification of God. As we read on in that Philippians passage that I began to read earlier. So we saw that Jesus became obedient to the point of death on the cross. In verse 9 we read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God values human life because he loves human life as his special creation, but even beyond that, God values human life because he values his own glory. So, as we think about our next point, which is this, human life is sacred because Christ Jesus is restoring it, I want us to think about God's glory in humanity, in his image bearers being restored. In um, 19, see if I can remember the date, 1956, Somebody took a, a bucket of acid and threw it on the Mona Lisa. It covered the bottom portion of the Mona Lisa and did tremendous damage to the picture. And after years of restoration, the Mona Lisa was restored to at least what looks like it was before 1956. It was restored. The masterpiece was restored. And now, 
The Mona Lisa sits behind bulletproof glass in several feet of distance. I don't know if anyone's ever been to the, to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa. Quite a bit of distance, and then there's, it is behind um, bulletproof glass and everything else. And it, it's quite unimpressive, I think, as, at least what I've heard. As people see it, it looks small, and it's far away, and it, it's, it's utterly protected. What a shame that that restored image by da Vinci receives more protection than the image of God in our culture. God is restoring his image bearers, God's glory givers. He is restoring humanity to what it was supposed to be. We could not restore ourselves. We could not fix the fact that we were sinfully marred image bearers. So Jesus, the only man who who ever fully imaged his father perfectly, came and died a death that he did not deserve so that he might forgive our sins and give his perfect righteousness to all who would believe. So 2 Corinthians 5 is all about image restoration. In verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a way, we could remove, we could reword the word at the end of that verse and say that in him we might become the image of God. Those who repent of their sins, who turn to Christ and are united to him by faith, he takes on their sin Upon himself, and he restores them to his image. He allows them to take on his image. So we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those in Christ have been recreated, recreated in the image of God. What we were originally created to be, but couldn't because of sin, we now can be because we are in Christ. The image of God is being restored because we are being conformed to the image of Christ. And we read that in several places. First of all, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's Jesus, the new Adam. Colossians 3, 9. Put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So those who have placed their faith in Christ have been declared righteous and justified before God, and we are in the process of becoming who we already are. His image is being restored in us so that day by day, month by month, year by year, we are reflecting his glory more and more and more. That's what's happened in a true believer's life, in a Christian's life. But our restoration as image bearers only comes when we repent of our sins, as verse 19 in today's text tells us, and put our faith in Christ. Only when we believe these things we've talked about today. Oh, friend, you must turn from your sin. You must repent of it. You must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Put all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your rest in him alone. For you can do nothing to save yourself. You can do nothing to restore yourself. You need the hero of the story. You need the author of life. And thus we see that God is glorified. God is magnified in the restoration of his image bearers. God values human life, yes, because he loves human life, but ultimately because he loves his own glory. And the best and most loving thing he can do for us is to show us his glory and to make us people who reflect his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our restoration and our salvation is, as Ephesians 1.6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. God's not just restoring people for people's sake. He's not restoring you for your sake. He's restoring you for his sake, for his glory. He's restoring you so that the earth will praise him. The gospel ultimately is not about man. It's about God and him receiving all the glory. And that's the best thing he can give us is his glory because it's the greatest good in the universe. And God is a good gift giver. And so... We were created for him, Colossians 1.16. I read part of this earlier. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, for his glory. So, friends, abortion is all about God. As John Piper once said, it's not just a social issue. Or a woman's issue, or a children's issue, or a health issue. It is beneath all those, and more important than all those, a God issue. Abortion is not solely an assault on humanity. It is an assault on God. All devaluing of human life is a direct assault on God and his glory. It is a high-handed demeaning of God. And that's why the gospel is so important. The gospel is God's plan to forgive and restore people who have committed the ultimate outrage of discounting his glory by discarding people created in his image. So to defeat, so to defeat abortion in all forms of human devaluation, we need first and foremost the gospel. We need political action, yes. We need philosophical reasoning, yes. We need scientific advances, yes. But mostly we need the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope for understanding the true sanctity of human life. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for the guilty. It's the only hope for the one who has had an abortion. And for the abortionist. And for the boyfriend who encouraged the abortion. And for the parent who consented to the abortion. And for the friend who didn't object to the abortion. And for those who have sat silently year after year for 43 years through the hidden holocaust of abortion. So, friends, there are none sitting in the pews who are without blood on their hands. None. And the only hope for all of us, every single one of us, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It forgives, it restores, it gives true value and true sanctity to human life. So how can we be involved? Let me just close with a few practical words. How can we as the body of Christ be mobilized against the culture of death in our society? Well, first of all, these bottles are here to encourage you to support our local crisis pregnancy center, the Pregnancy Resource Center of Gwinnett County. What I want you to do is take these bottles home and keep them for a week. The information is in your bullet to keep them for a month and collect some money and we're going to bring it back and we're going to take it to the Resource Center. Pray for the Pregnancy Resource Center and its, its uh, employees. We need to fast and pray for our nation. We need to be educated about the statistics. 
We need to learn how to intelligently engage the conversation and persuasively argue the pro-life position. We need to counsel and serve those who have had abortions or been involved in abortions. We need to put political pressure on those in power to defend the weakest in our society. We need to vote. We need to go to the local Planned Parenthood and do some sidewalk counseling and witnessing. But most importantly, we need to share the gospel. Outside of Planned Parenthood, sure, but everywhere. Everywhere. We need to share the gospel with neighbors, with co-workers, with family, with friends. For only the gospel demonstrates the true sanctity of human life. Only the gospel can provide hope for a guilty nation involved in a holocaust like this one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. There is not a guiltless person here in this room. I know I've been too timid at times to broach the subject of abortion with someone that I know I needed to talk to. I've been too weak to share the gospel when I needed to. There's not a single one of us in here that can hold our head high and still live in a nation where 56 million babies have been intentionally killed. Forgive us, Lord. And Lord, we rest in the gospel. We rest in Jesus for that forgiveness. Oh, Lord, don't let us try to atone for our own sins by leaving this place and collecting a bunch of money to make ourselves feel better or going and standing in front of Planned Parenthood and, and, and trying to counsel and share the gospel. Lord, let us do those things, but let our motivation for those things, Father, not be some sort of appeasing of our own guilt. Instead, let us rest on the gospel. Let us rest on the fact that if we have placed our faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we are clean. And now... We must begin to reflect the one that we have been recreated to reflect in every aspect of our life. So, Father, I ask you to go before us. Help Harbins know, as a church, how we can be more engaged in these things. Lord, I pray that our defense of life would be unhinged from political parties. Oh, Father, let us see that there are men out there Probably some women too who are telling us that they love life so they can get us to vote and put a check mark by their name. Oh, Father, help us to see that we have to be willing to be gospel-centered in our defense of life and that may put us at odds with everyone. So drive us, Lord. Drive us by your Holy Spirit to stand for life and to communicate that the only reason life is sacred is because it's created in the image of God and that fallen men are being restored to the image of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason. Otherwise, we're just animals. Dogs, cats, pig. Help us to see where true value lies and help us defend life but mostly help us proclaim the gospel. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus, the perfect image bearer who came 
and allowed himself to be slaughtered for the sake of his people. So that now in him, in him, we have life. Because he did not stay in that grave but rose again and triumphantly lives to make intercession for us. We know that you're hearing our prayers. So we pray all this in his name. Amen. What you're about to hear are the sounds of metal BBs striking the side of a tin can. For every BB that strikes, it represents 10,000 lives lost in the wars of America's past. The American Revolution. The Civil War. World War One. World War Two. The Korean Conflict. The Conflict in Vietnam. September 11th and the War on Terror. Since 1973, the War on the Unborn Child. just aren't ready or don't have the resources to raise a child and abortion is the only way to go. You should have the right to end a child's life if it needs to be. Yes, it's another human life, but it's their body. I'm convinced that if pro-life Christians don't lovingly but truthfully open the casket on abortion, our nation will continue to tolerate a holocaust it never has to look at. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Something that stayed with me for many, many years is a very devastating thing. You don't see people morally struggling in the pesticide section of Home Depot, but what if right next to it was a section that was to kill your neighbor's dogs and cats section? My mom had signed up to have me aborted. If it could be shown that the unborn are human beings, would you agree that it's wrong to intentionally kill them. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. To think that you could have such a great savior that could save someone like me that was a murderer. Murderer.